Hello again, and welcome to this week's book club, in which we are returning to the troubled, bloody kingdom of Henry VI. This is a big, sprawling play. It may only be the tenth longest play in the complete works, but it does have the honour of having the largest character count of any play that Shakespeare wrote. If, as you were reading it, you didn't quite manage to put a face on all sixty of them, don't beat yourself up. This is as much a play of images and ideas and politics as it is a collection of actors and performances. What fascinates me about this play is that we can see Shakespeare testing out some very interesting ideas and stunts that might happen again later in his career. The Henry VI plays are among his earliest big successes, so I've been interested to look at what elements of the play came directly from him, the parts that are a departure from his source material. Just as he did in part one, creating an elegant origin story for the red and white roses that give the ensuing wars their name, in this play we see some very potent imagery. The play charts the rise of Margaret and the fall of Gloucester. The young woman from Anjou goes on quite a journey over the course of this play, asserting herself in direct opposition to the Duke of Gloucester, the Lord Protector, whose downfall she helps to orchestrate. Margaret is a phenomenal part. Her combined contributions in the three Henry plays and in Richard III constitute the largest female character in Shakespeare. Gloucester, who has basically been ruling England since Henry came to the throne at about nine months old, will slowly be undone by events in this play. The first sign of trouble is after the marriage, when he's reading out news that various key strategic cities in France have been lost. He has to stop reading because the paper quite literally falls from his hands. Shakespeare is neatly showing us power starting to trickle away from him. The downfall of Gloucester's wife happens first. The Duchess of Gloucester, Eleanor, is an ambitious woman. Shakespeare rearranges the timeline somewhat so that Margaret and Eleanor can seem to compete. In fact, Eleanor was finished a few years before Margaret became queen. But the seething competition between the new lady at court and the wife of the regent makes for very good theatre, and so, of course, Shakespeare includes it. Ambitious Eleanor feels that really her husband should be king, and she's been consulting a bona fide witch for quite some time. When she gets desperate, she even arranges for a spirit to be conjured from the afterlife to explain what the future might hold. She's caught in this outrageous act, and Eleanor's confidence will be burned at the stake. But she, the wife of a man as powerful as Gloucester, is given a gentler but no less public punishment. Certainly her days of influence are over. Meanwhile, Gloucester is appalled at his wife's behaviour but agrees immediately that if she has fallen, she must be punished. His loyalty is to the king. Already we've seen some evidence of how he's managed the kingdom. There's a scene of a hungry peasant couple faking miracles, smartly outwitted by the duke. There's also the settling of an argument between two claimants who are forced to duke it out in single combat, but with saddlebags instead of real weapons. In these scenes, we're being shown the breakdown of religious faith and of the old codes of chivalry. In the first part of Henry VI, we saw Joan of Arc burned at the stake. 
Now miracles are not to be trusted, and even the old-fashioned ways of settling disputes are reduced to messy brawls. The old order is disintegrating, not least because the king is pretty useless. Gloucester can barely keep control, and there are a great many others vying for power. Chief among them Margaret and her lover Suffolk, he who arranged to marry her to the king so that he could influence her and the running of the country. And the two of these work to implicate Gloucester. He's forced to hand over his sceptre of power, giving it back to the king, and he limps away. One of the most exciting moments of this play is when Margaret speaks out in court for the first time. The nobles answer her in quite a condescending way because she is a woman, but she's more than able to answer their derision. Gloucester, eventually, is murdered before he can be tried. This is a breaking point for Henry. Too late, of course, he realises that Gloucester was very loyal and an exemplary noble. We get the unusual spectacle of his corpse being brought on stage. It's like something out of a Greek tragedy. He's given an autopsy in which we hear of all the signs that he was strangled. A little earlier in the play, Gloucester himself had lamented to the king that virtue is choked with foul ambition. Sadly, this is exactly what happens to him. This focus on the body, on the violence being done to the body, will continue. This is a very violent play, and the repeated descriptions of harm being done to people continues the idea of just how harmful a lack of true leadership can be and the implication is that everyone will suffer. While Margaret and Suffolk, and the Bishop of Winchester, Cardinal Beaufort, all conspire to rid themselves of Gloucester, the Duke of York is still working in the background in his attempt to gain the crown that he believes is rightly his. He and Margaret are the main antagonists, each the most effective figure in these warring families of York and Lancaster. But while they bide their time and tensions build, Shakespeare pulls in yet another historical event, the Jack Cade Rebellion. As our playwright would have it, Cade was egged on by York to rebel against the king, so even this paragon of freedom and mob rule was actually under the influence of someone else. Cade's proclamations and policies are really frightening, among them systemic rape and punishments even for literacy, and a host of other horrors. It seems that Shakespeare drew on ideas and images from various other rebellions in his depiction of this uprising. Cade's progress is going well until yet another emerging character, Clifford, appears and invokes the name of Henry V, and all of Cade's supporters abandon him. He himself escapes and goes for several days without food until he finds himself in the walled garden of a man called Aidan, or perhaps it's pronounced Eden. This man waxes poetic about how much better it is to live in the country than in the city, and is portrayed as a perfect country landowner, living in an almost idyllic paradise, a new Eden, perhaps. He helps to feed the poor, he minds his own, and has no ideas above his station. It's almost tempting, it seems, for many commentators to see a wistful William Shakespeare in this man, since our playwright would end his days, decades after this play, in quite a similar setup. But Mr. Eden 
isn't just a bucolic nice guy. He decapitates Jack Cade and brings his head to the king, for which service he is knighted. There's quite a disturbing number of severed heads in this play. It has more even than Titus Andronicus. Cade's mob enjoys sticking them on spikes and rubbing them together, making them seem to kiss as they march along. Cade himself is relieved of his head too. But perhaps the most shocking victim of this death is Suffolk, who somehow winds up on a pirate ship and is also decapitated. The head is delivered to Margaret, who carries it around with her as she grieves. This is the final straw, the last hurdle she clears in her descent into naked villainy. Her behaviour in the third of the Henry VI plays is truly blood-curdling. The play ends with the first battle of St Albans. There has been some potential for a truce, but it falls apart, and so we get a battle between Henry and Margaret versus York and his supporters. There are casualties on both sides, and we don't get a full or a neat conclusion. There's no particular evidence for the order in which Shakespeare may have written the three parts of this king's story, but part two, so named because of its position in the chronology of the story, is considered the best of them. But even it has to end in the middle of things, because of course part three is yet to come. Rival wives at court, conjuring of spirits, fake miracles, awkward jousting, murder, beheadings, populist rebellion, burgeoning civil war, and, lest we forget, pirates. This play really does have it all. On the page, this play can seem bewildering, but when robustly performed, and may be given a little editing, it is a remarkably strong insight into a country falling apart. In it we can see the seeds of Julius Caesar, another play about national unrest, assassination, and the outbreak of civil war. It feels particularly timely this week, when the news is likewise full of stories about an England beset with an ineffective ruler, a squabbling rabble competing in government, and a total ignorance and antipathy for the lives of the less fortunate. Perhaps someone needs to stage King Henry VI and take the temperature of the nation with this surprising play. If you're listening in real time through this book club project, you'll know that next week's episode will be coming on Halloween. And for that reason, I reckon it is time to take a look at Shakespeare's spookiest play, Macbeth. We might even talk about why it has such a terrifying reputation and why its very name is not to be spoken around theatre folk. It also happens to be my favourite of the plays, so I hope you'll have a good time reading it. Thank you, as always, for tuning in, and I'll speak to you next week.